Hi there, I hope you're well. Now, 2023 was quite the year. And re-listening to many of the episodes, I've realised just how much gold I've forgotten. So I've pulled out some of the highlights for you as a bit of an aid memoir. 2023 also was a massive year of travel for us. And one of the things that worked really well when we were on the road was that the kids each had spriggy debit cards. So instead of them borrowing our credit cards to pay for things, especially as cash is something we hardly use ourselves now, they each have a card that has their pocket money prepaid onto it, all of which can be checked through an app on your phone. You can even give access to family and grandparents, etc., in case they want to give the kids money as well. If you're in Australia and looking for a way to sort of better manage how your kids deal with pocket money and spending, I can't recommend Spriggy enough. If you'd like to give it a go, it's usually $30 to get a card for each child. But if you click the link on this week's episode in the show notes or go to thedadmindset.com forward slash useful stuff, that's all one word for useful stuff, you can get $20 back when you sign up. Anyway, let's get into the show. I hope you enjoy listening to a recap of 2023. First up, we have senior maverick at Wired magazine, Kevin Kelly, discussing things he wished he'd done more of with his kids. Raising kids is more than just having good advice. There's so much more than just being consistent, being reliable, being loving, being warm, all those things count as much as being smart yeah and time with the kids because i know that definitely comes through in the book as well you know if you i mean if you had your time over as a parent kevin would you do things differently or Uh, there's some things i would definitely do differently i put in the time i have no regrets about the time i put in um the one thing i did regret that we didn't do more of that's in the book of advice is um doing more family rituals Um, because they're so easy to do. They're basically free and they were so meaningful. And uh, to do a family ritual, you have to to do something three times in a row and it's a ritual. And the important thing for the kids is having them anticipate it. That anticipation is, is a mark that it's a ritual but what the ritual does, this recurring thing that you do, is that it forms a it forms an anchor. It's anchoring because it's reliable. You can count on it. It's dependable. And children crave that reliability and consistency and what you can expect and no surprises and that kind of security that they get and having something be counted on. And so it may be that even if things are kind of crazy, things are upsetting around them in any way, but if they have this thing where they know every Sunday morning you're going to cook pancakes, that can counter all that other stuff. And the more of those you have, the more anchoring they are, the more settling and also, the more they take on legendary status and they become something that you can return to. So you can count on it, return to it. Even when you move away from home, it's something that in their head, the kids return to in their image of um, of home. And, and that's sort of that home sense of resting in it, of being the safe place is in part because of the little rituals that you make. Yeah. And it's almost like a home you can take with you anywhere as well. Yes. You know, even if you move right. lo- physical location, you can still yeah, do yeah, pancakes yeah, yeah. on a Sunday morning. Right. Exactly. I meant the home in a kind of a metaphorical sense. Mm. Right. But, but, um, um, so that's, yeah, that's something that, that I wish we had done more of because again, it could be something as easy as, you know, um, something you do before every birthday. It could be how you do a birthday card. It could be what you do on annual vacation or where you go. It could be something that you do at the seasons, at the equinoxes. It doesn't matter as long as you redo it three times <laughs> and then you keep doing it. Um, it becomes something. And, and so um, 
Anyway, that's something I do wish we had done more of. Uh, uh, another thing that I think took me a while to kind of understand, and I regret not having done it earlier, and so my advice is to those listening, do it now, which is um, to work on the identity of the family as so that when kids are going through, they're inventing, their, they're making up, they're creating their identity, and it really is helpful for them to have be given the identity of a family to help them, again, become a platform for developing their own identity. If they have nothing, it's so hard. But if they can kind of fall back to the identity they have as a family, the family identity. So that means like our family does this, or our family doesn't do this, or our family is about this, or our family is always this way. And there is a sense in which um, that, again, that rootedness, the anchoring, becomes important and um, it, to have that family identity, it becomes things that you do as a family, but also talking about the kind of family happiness and the happiness of the family and and um, then the identity of the family, meaning that you talk about, well, our, you articulate that this is what our family is about. This is the brand of our family. This is what we do. How you know? And so um, that, again, is something that's, Inexpensive to do. Um, it's more powerful than than I thought, particularly, again, as kids get older in age and they look back and they try to carry that forward. Um, articulating that is, 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 is part of this process where you may be doing it, but you actually say it. It's like a branding exercise <laughs> in some ways. So, um, so yeah, so, so, I mean, maybe I reduced it to like, you know, what's the family brand and um, how that, the power of branding is is at work here yeah i love that because <laughs> you could say like oh we're a family that really loves adventuring and yeah. and and that's something that the, the kids really latch onto and like, no, no we're, we're an adventuring right. family and e- but even if they don't themselves adventure it's having that as a as a as a platform as a beginning to develop our own they may, you know, they may come around and say, yeah, my family was all about adventuring and I never kind of got into it, but um, at least there was a place for you to start to understand that you were, you know, you were not that. And so hopefully the, 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 what the family's about does include everybody in the family or else it really isn't that authentic, but um, you don't have to necessarily, you know, doesn't have to, if your family's about, well, our family was public service or whatever it is. It doesn't mean you have to go into public service, but it does mean that that's that you have some something about that that you can carry forward. Yeah, yeah, you have a solid roots. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, you have solid roots to work from and figure out what's what's for right. you and what's not for you um, moving forward. Yeah, I really like that. I think um, w- with that as well. Like you say, the inexpensivity of, yeah. you know, I, I love one of the points you made about spending uh, for best results in children, spend half the money you think you should, but double the time with them. And that to me is gold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so I have I have some, f- my, my best friend has um, nine kids. Um, no, he has seven kids and my, his, my other friend has nine. And um I have some, and, and he, and one of the guy with nine is works in a grocery store. So they have no money, you know, at grocery store wages with nine kids. Um, they bought a big like school bus to try and do vacations because they couldn't afford to fly. And, um, but the thing about that is, is when they're growing up, the kids don't know that they don't have any money. They, they have no idea. Uh, they just don't even know. It doesn't doesn't register. You, you could be hand down clothes. That's okay. They they there's no. It works, but they do notice, and they will notice if you don't spend the time with them. So I just saw I saw someone else tweet something I thought was really great. It said the um. Uh, the only, the only, people who will notice. When you go, that you work to your day off or something as your kids or something like that. It was, I don't know the exact phrasing, but it's really great. Meaning that, yeah, the, the not spending the time with the kids is something that they will notice. 
And that's so maximizing that over money is, you know, you don't want to be working hard to make more money for your kids. That's doesn't work. You want to be taking time off from working for your kids. Next up, we have author and adventurer Bo Miles on trusting yourself. Yeah, so it's all about time management now in, in a way because, uh, you know, we get 168 hours a week. And if you if you dedicate that to yourself, then, you know, okay, you've got some work in there and some play in there and some eating and sleeping and whatnot. When May comes along, essentially you add on half of her 168 hours because, you know, Helen's taking the other half, but you're really your, uh, your life improves hugely because you've got all these more moving parts. But, of course, you've got to be, become a, a time management machine to still continue the things that you think define you, et cetera, et cetera. So I've just been playing with this aspect of how much time I require to keep bow bow and how much um, that has to do with being, uh, you know, I'm sort of a four-day dad at the moment and that's, that's exhausting in all the right ways. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just... I'm just I'm just sort of learning. I'm back to square one. <laughs> I, I think um, actually it reminds me of your film A Mile an Hour, where you actually ran a marathon in 24 hours. Uh, and I think it's probably the best video to start with. Uh, I, I, you've probably got a different perspective there. But uh, you got so much done in that video. How do you reckon that actually stacks up to an average bow day now? Oh, that was clearly a stunt, you know, in terms of what I did between each of the laps. And yet, I'm still trying to cram in those kind of efficiencies. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not always good at it. In fact, I'm not, I'm not good at it generally because I take on still probably too much. Uh, this is my second podcast for the day. I'm finishing a book within the next 36 hours, and I'm finishing a film within the next 48 hours. And next week, I'm going to go and run a 210 kilometers on a track that I'm nervous about running. And so, I have a lot of, I have a lot. I've checked off on for this next seven or eight days um, and I tend to do that every so often that really blows me out a little bit and yet I don't I like being pushed into a corner too I don't mind it at all and that's and as I as you and I touched on at the start of the, the chat you know that maybe that's this whole building of resilience is to filter through the good and the bad stresses so and that's always a fine balancing act yeah. What's the book about, Bo? Can you share that anything with us yet? Yeah, The Backyard Adventurer. Yeah, it's it's been um and so look it really just maps my last five or six years of of rather than going to the ends of the earth to find myself or find a, a view or to find a, a something. Uh I'm now doing that in my backyard, essentially. You're almost a hundred K radius of where I live and pack it all in you know i'm still in search of those moments of physicality and challenge and and breakthrough and insight uh, but i don't necessarily want to jump on a plane and go far away to do it yeah i want to be close to, to may and helen but i still want to sort of explore that sense of curiosity i mean big gums is a classic example of that isn't it when you you basically camped out in a massive gum tree in your garden overnight yeah yeah, I'm lucky. That I, I, uh, and I, it's the whole reason I bought this little five-acre hamlet I'm living on because the, the buildings were crap, but the, the trees were remarkable, though. These big, you know, these magnificent specimens that have been here for longer than white folks have in the area. So, um, yeah, I was very attracted to the block for those trees. And, uh, yeah, I thought I'll spend a nine one. I haven't spent a night in a tree for 20 years. Why not, why not just see what it's like from nine or ten metres up? And it was excellent just to be sort of... You know, to be at the, unlike a portal edge when you go rock climbing, which is a bit more static, although, yes, the wind will blow you around, but the rock doesn't move. Yeah. The tree moves. You know, yeah. when, you, when, you, when you're up there, you just feel it and you really are in the grip of something else. It was, it was pretty cool. I didn't sleep much. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned that your legs almost fell off the uh, platform yeah. at one stage. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I just readjusted myself and up go the legs and you sort of buzzle around and you put them back down very much expecting there to be boards underneath you and there just wasn't. I just was, I was a bit further to the edge than I thought. <laughs> it's, um, it's a, a good point because I was wanting to ask you, has your approach to risk and exposure actually changed at all since becoming a father? Uh, no, a lot of people have asked me that too. I've always been really calculated, I think, with the risks that I take to the point where I think they're quite sedentary. I, 
I lived for a winter once with the world extreme skiing champion and she was on skis and I'm on snowboards and I, I can, I can hold my own on a snowboard. I worked in the industry for a bunch of years, but she'd just, she would just blitz past me and do things that I could only ever imagine. She was just very competent as a skier. She was excellent. She was sublime to watch. And so her going down a 60 or 70 degree slope in the Alps, you know, jumping out of a helicopter was just within her skill set. So we know that risk is a, is a potion of competency versus, um, you know, so as your risk, risk increases as your competency increases. So I just always think I've been in the bandwidth of my, of my uh, skill level. Yeah, and it's and relative so, to where you are. Totally, yeah, and I, I, won't, I won't go beyond that. I, I have no desire to be confronted with misadventure, whereas I'll, I think a lot of people who do things for the first or worst or highest or fastest, they're, they're, they're operating in a bandwidth I just don't think I'd, I'm bothered with. It's just not my thing. Yeah. You've done a bunch of uh, experiments as well. Well, you seem to learn, uh, and you, you say that you learn a lot about yourself when doing these sort of self-experiments like the human being. Uh, are there any things that you've sort of discovered that you think would be really useful to pass on to me? Yeah, I've said this also um, in the last 24 hours to, to in conversations that, uh, Rich, I'm hopeless at, at um, advice. I really suck at giving advice because I... I tend to tend to stop myself before giving advice because I figure I've figured out a lot of things by myself or just being an observer of people in the world and reading or watching YouTube, whatever. And I think a lot of people have that same capacity. So I don't like to force feed anything or give anyone a list of how your life will be better or fitter or leaner or more adventurous. It's just not my shtick. Um, but in saying that, um, I, I suppose that is my advice, Rich. You know, my <laughs> advice might be very much to be, you've got a really good head on your shoulders, so you, you use it and trust yourself. I tend to trust myself and that's my, I'm not overly smart. I'm, I'm not the world's best athlete in a bunch of things, but if you put together, if you trust where you're at and, and trust yourself, you can do remarkable stuff. One of the things that we're all going to have to contend with at some time or other is death and grief. And the chat I had with thanatologist Colin Peary was really helpful in preparing for how to discuss those difficult things with our kids in a way that's clear and supportive. So it's hard. There is no template for something like this. Um, I think, and this is my advice that I give to anybody that's ever, uh, people ask me, they're like, okay, what do I say to my friend whose husband died or my friend's daughter died or whoever dies? whenever, doesn't matter who it is, the thing that you're trying to do as a friend, as a family member, as somebody who is like, I'm going to try to support you in your loss, you're not trying to change the grief. You're not trying to help it move really anywhere. Only we can move our own grief. What we do as supporters, our job is to pick it up and look at it together. And this might sound kind of corny, but um, okay, a lot of people have coffee tables in their houses and people will pick like objects to just like put out on the coffee table that's meant to be just like looked at. It might be like a coffee table book. It might be like some bowl of balls that we put out and we set it there and it's like a decor piece. So grief is, we, we, we want to treat our friends grief. Like it's something that they've put out on their coffee table. So you're over at their house and you're going to say, oh my gosh, look at this coffee table book you're going to pick up the coffee table book which is their grief and you're going to say oh what is this about how is your how's your grief today what is it like for you you want to look at it together grief is something that just needs to be witnessed just needs to be seen just needs to be held and that's it and then you set it back down on the coffee table and start talking about sports or start talking about what's for dinner or whatever it is um and that is always my advice for how, how do you like, quote, support somebody through a loss? You just need to pick up the grief and look at it together. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it sounds so simple now when you say it like that. <laughs> and I, I guess it's like, how do you model that then? I mean, what would it be from a, say, a parent's perspective? Like, how do you suggest that parents sort of talk this thing through with kids so that they can actually 
do that when the time comes? I mean, is it something that you wait until it actually is on your doorstep or is there something that you can you recommend that we're talking about every day or we we bring into conversation every now and then or what what are the sort of suggestions that you have Cole Yeah so um with kids first of all parents you know your kids best period so just because somebody on some podcast says something if it doesn't feel right to you don't do it you you know your kids best so I always like to say that up front um with kids kids learn first and foremost from their parents, like what bad words are. And sometimes we make the word death a word that we whisper, just like a swear word. So kids pick up on that. So if you talk about death, dying and grief, but you drop your voice when you do it, you're teaching them, oh, we have to be scared, I guess. I guess this is scared i guess like because we're you know you should you should be afraid to say a bad word when you're a kid right so if mom and dad or whatever are whispering the word died something to be scared of so first as parents i'd say you need to try to not um talk about this very normal thing death dying grief and loss it's going to happen it's this is what's terrible about being a human Gonna have to deal with loss your whole dang life. <laughs> you're gonna yeah. lose people, you're gonna lose things, you're gonna lose dreams. I mean, you're going to be dealt loss after loss your whole life. So try to talk about it like it is a normal part of life and not like it's this rare thing that is a secret. So that's number one. Pay attention to how you're just like mentioning it casually. Second, with kids, don't be scared. <laughs> Don't be afraid. It is natural to be curious about death and grief and how did grandpa die? And, you know, what, like, what do you mean the dog, like the dog was sick? What, what, what did the dog die of? That's curiosity and answer those questions. Now, as a parent and depending on the age of your child, you know, you don't have to be fully graphic with your description, but like, for example, like if, um, if grandpa dies, and grandpa got sick. What's important there, like this is maybe more of a practical tip. Like if you tell your child grandpa died because he was sick, well, what can happen is your child in the future may get sick and have to stay home from school and be like, am I going to die? Instead, yeah. <laughs> what you would say about grandpa is, well, grandpa got sick, which is maybe true. Um, and his heart gave out because he was old. You don't have to worry about that because your heart is young and you can get sick, but it's not going to be at all like what happened with grandpa because you're young. You know, that is giving complete and accurate information um, in a way that that a child can kind of understand and they can get they can like understand why grandpa died. Um, sometimes parents will be too vague by just being like, oh, she she was sick. But then, you know, what's a kid going to do? They're going to be like, oh, my God, every time I get sick, I might be dying. So things like that are helpful. When it comes to being deliberate, CEO of Bellroy, Andy Forshaw, helped describe the importance of defining our values and updating our beliefs. I think we do think about values as being something that shouldn't change much over time. You might shift them, you might get better clarity. Sometimes you realize a value is not serving you well, and you might need a contrast or a complement to that value. But Beliefs should be updating constantly. You know, I joke with my kids, there is never 100% certainty in anything. Everything is essentially a probability mass, and that probability mass gets informed by priors, it gets informed by emotional gut feels, it gets informed by a lot of different things, but you've got to just keep updating. I don't think there is, you know, a divine truth. I don't think there is the one reality, you know, perceptions, everything, color it. But I think you can move closer to thoughts that serve you well and closer to beliefs that serve you well. And so, I, I cringe every time our society rips apart a politician for changing their mind. It's like, what? If you're not changing your mind, that's the problem. So, the values should be there. They should move slowly and slowly have more clarity, but beliefs should be getting modified and moved and updated regularly. Otherwise, you've stopped learning. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're stagnating. And I mean, the values thing is a great challenge. How did you actually begin to take stock of your values and actually formalize their priority? 
I think it happens in many ways. I think one way is deliberate introspection projects, right? It's like really trying to go into yourself and think, why am I doing that? Like I notice myself responding a certain way in a conversation or I notice myself prioritizing one thing over another. Can I actually sit down anytime I'm confused? Can I find some space and try and dig into, is there something deeper getting me to make that choice? Like, is there something deeper driving me to that? And so often when we hit frustration points or confusion, if you go deep enough, you can actually find that there appear to be two values that seem to be in conflict. And and then the job is to sort of say, well, is there a, a paradigm shift or something I can do where I can actually understand there is a way to navigate forward where I don't have to compromise this value for that value? There might actually be a way to sort of transcend that frustration or that compromise and actually find a way to mesh it. So part of it is these active kind of course correcting steps when you notice yourself a bit confused or disappointed by a behavior you've done. But then part of it too is really trying to understand the culture you've been brought up in. You know, the Fulshaw dinner table is a great example. It's like, what was good about that? What was bad about that? What's the value driving that? Both my parents were religious. I'm not, but I've still inherited many of the values that had them find a religion as a compass to navigate with those values, where myself, I've ended up realizing that those values didn't need that religion as a compass. But I I find the way I live my life is still fairly similar to a lot of what my parents were trying to achieve while they were alive. And so, some of it is really trying to understand your own culture, understand the cultures you're moving between, understand different cultures, trying to step back and say, while the behaviours might be different, can I go deeper and understand the values that are driving those behaviours? So, some of it's sort of introspection, some of it's trying to really actively break apart and then pull back together things you're seeing in the world and things that you know have influenced you. Some of it's trying to really understand friendships and the people you spend time with and and sort of drill down to try and build a bit of a map for them and understand their value base. And does that feel like a good value or a bad? Is that serving them and society well or is it hindering something? Is it a chance that the value is noble but the expression of that value is not right? So, I, I think there's many ways. You know, you, you read the classics, you go from Stoicism to Buddhism to, you know, all these different philosophies. You try and tease out which values seem to transcend eras and generations. You you kind of do some active searching and learning from history, from other cultures and approaches. Some of it, you try and understand your own behaviors. I, I think it's a sort of broad avenues for ways I try and do that. Considering 50% of the people we know and love experience periods, it was really insightful hearing about the menstrual cycle from author, and musician Lucy Peach. The amount of dads that I talk to, so I do parent talks at schools and um, I can see, the, you know, the t- and there's often not that many dads but there's generally like there's a few but not, you know, it's more mums, like probably 70, 30. And some of the dads come in and they're sort of like, <laughs> arms and legs crossed. They're sitting crossed. as far <laughs> back in the seat as they can with their arms crossed. And I'm always really kind of just try to welcome them in as much as I can to say, like, I know this is a complete world away from what you grew up with, but, and, you know, you don't need to learn how to put a tampon in or anything, (laughs) but it's about being um, really present and curious and open and just acknowledging that this is a part of who you are and there is nothing about you, my daughter, that is too big or too scary or too uncomfortable for me because I'm your dad and you can talk to me about any part of it. So if you're feeling this here and you want to talk about it, I'm your guy. If you're feeling this and you just want to let off some steam or go and chuck some rocks off a bridge, hit me up. Like, what 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 could it be like if if you know you knew that your dad was available for all the parts of who you are, and how then would that set you up um, for relationships and letting you know what you could expect, you know, 
down the track if you choose to have a relationship with a man. Yeah. I mean, I can't say, Lucy, like how that makes me feel when you just say that. Because how, that Tell how, me, how does it make you it, feel? It, it makes me feel like I want to tear up because that's yeah. exactly how I want to present to yeah. my, my kids. You know, yeah. I want to be there for all of them. To, yeah. Not to invade, but just to be there to support them whenever they need me in whatever yeah. form that takes. Yeah. And and I, I can imagine like 100% of dads are the same if they're honest with themselves. Well, and, that's the thing. Yeah. And I think and it makes me want to tear up as well because, you know, we didn't have this, you know, look, we didn't, we didn't have this. And, you know, if we do want to really tip this over, then we really need dads. We need men. We need dads. We need partners who are just open to having a conversation. Following on from this theme, we chatted with nutritionist and naturopath Stacey Curcio about the changes that happen at the other end of the spectrum from puberty for women, and that's perimenopause. I think sometimes it's even hard for women to articulate to their partners what they're going through because they they don't really know what they're going through. Sometimes it's hard for them to to pinpoint that because they may not have had any education or literacy around what's actually happening in their body. Um, secondly, it can be unpredictable as well, and and sometimes it can feel almost like a bit of a loss of loss of control, and they their body and their minds are changing, and so. You know, it's as you say. I think the biggest thing is that it's it's not even necessarily an understanding. It's just it's just communication. And really, I think as a partner, always sort of saying, "What can I do to help?" You know, "How are you today? Tell me what's going on. How how are you feeling?" And really, sort of troubleshooting that together, and not really trying to solve anything for your partner, but really just being there for them, and knowing that that process is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, it's really not, um, it's not something that happens overnight. And so, you know, the fastest transition through that is two years, you know, which is still a two-year process. But to be honest, that that's really the exception, you know, not the rule for women. So um, I think the other, the other thing too, Rich, is that, you know, we've learned so much more about, about perimenopause and this sequence of events that happens especially just in the last decade or so. I mean, I, I was, I studied, oh, I was, you know, I started studying 18 years ago now, 17, 18 years ago. Uh, and, and we didn't know what we know now about this sort of software upgrade information. So we know when a woman goes through perimenopause, for example, it's not just that she's coming to the end of her reproductive, reproductive life and she, you know, her eggs are being depleted and she's becoming less fertile and her menstrual cycle, the period is changing. It's actually that her entire metabolic health is changing. You know, her entire immune system is sort of going through a recalibration stage. And this is why often we can see uh, an increased prevalence of autoimmune conditions, for example, during perimenopause. Um, you know, her uh, cardiovascular health is changing, but I suppose the site that, or the part of the body that arguably goes through the most amount of change is the brain. And so with that comes a myriad of symptoms, you know, with that can be uh, brain fog and lack of concentration and a uh, decreased ability to multitask. Um, there may be, you know, a higher stress uh, um, response, I suppose, or an increased strength sensitivity to stress. There can be anxiety, there can be depression for some women, there can be uh, insomnia. You know, these are all arguably neurological and brain-based changes. And so while the brain is is basically adjusting and adapting to decreasing levels of estrogen and decreasing levels of progesterone, it is vulnerable. And it's vulnerable to, um, I suppose, some of the lifestyle-based choices that, that we make. So, for example... If a woman, you know, historically has dealt with stress with having, you know, a tub of ice cream or a bowl of ice cream and a glass of wine, during perimenopause, those things don't necessarily help. You know, they can actually exacerbate her symptoms. And so often the things that someone has done to to get them through that stress are actually exacerbated and they no longer help. So it's really important, I think, that that that, that woman has 
you know, as much support as she can get during during that time um, because it is a vulnerable period and, you know, there are many ways I think especially that partners can can help and instead of saying, would you like a glass of wine, perhaps I've, I've booked you a massage for tomorrow, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, how about to have a weekend away with your girlfriends, you know, just just ways in which she can really, really truly give herself um, more care suppose yeah it must be really challenging as well because i imagine at that stage certainly in life i imagine a lot of women feel like they're that they're much more in control they have so much more agency you know they've they've had their families they're they're you know running families probably businesses all sorts of stuff like that but then to go through like brain fog and and almost feel like a lot of your superpowers are being extracted from you must be really challenging from an identity perspective as well. Absolutely. And I often get women say things to me like, oh, I I feel like I'm losing my mind. Like, I think I'm losing my mind, you know, during perimenopause. And I often say to them, I don't think you're losing your mind, but your (laughs) mind is changing. You know, it is changing. And so perhaps this is, this is actually, you know, I feel, and some experts in this field um, believe as well that this is actually a window of opportunity. You know, is an opportunity to actually, um, really, I suppose, reevaluate. You know, your life load and how you're spending your time and how you're looking after yourself. And this is a time where, if you can invest in yourself a little bit more during perimenopause and get more sleep, and you know eat all those good things that the brain really needs and lower the load of alcohol and get moving more and and do some things that you know are actually really, really going to help, you know, for stress, for example, then it can really set you up in terms of the the entire postmenopausal chapter. And a lot of women now are li- living longer in the postmenopausal window than they are in the reproductive in their reproductive sort of window. And so we want to be setting ourselves up for robust health, you know, during that time. And this is a window of opportunity to do that. Last but not least, we have educator, author, mother and parenting counsellor, Lael Stone, imparting her wisdom around looking beneath the behaviour in our kids. All behaviour is communicating something. So what we see on the external state is a reflection of what's going on internally. And when, you know, again, I think I come back to most of us were brought up in a behaviorism paradigm where we were either good or bad. And when you're good, you get energy and connection and reward. And when you're bad, we're going to take something away from you. And there's nothing in between there. It's, you know, the the story we've got is when a child is bad or they're not agreeing, it's because there's something wrong with them. And we need to punish them or discipline them in order to be good, right? That's that's how most of us were brought up. Yet when we dig a bit deeper and we begin to understand that there is always a reason for behaviour, always. So to break it down, you know, and one of the things I often talk about is that children are either in balance or out of balance. So when a child's in balance, they're feeling pretty good. They're connected in their bodies. They're feeling relaxed. You'll hear them singing in their bedroom. They'll come out and play with their sibling kindly. You know, you'll ask them to do something and they usually do it. We see that the child, you know, their nervous system's calm. They're feeling connected to us. Children are mostly cooperative when they're feeling really connected. When a child is out of balance, it's when we see them push back on a lot of stuff. It's when they won't listen to us. It's when they're picking fights with their siblings. It's when there's a whole lot of stuff going on inside them that they're like, I'm trying to find my way back into balance. And they're trying to find ways to do that. So when we kind of come back to what are some of the reasons why kids can be out of balance? You know, I mean, one of the first reasons which we, we all kind of know on some level is there's a need, right? Which is they're hungry or they're tired or they need some assistance with building this Lego tower because it's not working the way they want or you know we meet that need and then usually they feel okay right so then they're back in balance the second piece which I think is really important which we miss out on a lot is that there's a great need for information which means for some children they have to understand the why behind things or they have to have the information in order to help them feel safe and settled so it might be you know we're going to 
We're going to the park to make these friends, right? Now, some children will be like, but who's going to be there and how long will we be there for and what are we going to eat and where is the toilet? And there's a great need for information in order to help them feel safe. Now, as adults, we're like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But that causes stresses in their bodies and then they're feeling unsure and then they don't want to come. And so that's not all children, but some children who need information make a massive difference. Now, I love that you brought up when you say to your, your child, you know, we've got to brush your teeth because we're going to bed, you are giving them the information, but the information isn't the piece they need to help them do what we need to do, right? So the third reason why children can often have these big feelings is because there can be a buildup of stress and tension in their bodies or there can be trauma stories that are sticking there that are making them not want to cooperate but also that are trying to be moved and shifted from their bodies so I often explain it like let's just imagine a a four-year-old you know four-year-olds you know it's pretty hard being a four-year-old you get told what to do all day right now it's cool because you get to play a lot but from the moment you wake up you're being told to get dressed and you need to eat this and then we're going to kinder today and then we get dropped off kinder and even though kinder feels good you know it feels hard separating from a parent and then you're building this cool thing at kinder and someone walks past and kicks it over and then you get upset but people tell you not to cry and then and then you know everyone else is playing and they're not including you in the game and that feels really really hard and then you get to lunchtime and you open your lunchbox and mum's pack something that you don't even like to eat and that feels upsetting and and throughout the day there's all these beautiful little micro traumas that happen or upsets and they build in these little body and then when you get home and you know you cut their toast the wrong way or give them the wrong colored cup or or you know their sister has more ice cream than them and all of a sudden those feelings come pouring out because all that build up and tension has just reached a tipping point in their body and that's one of the reasons why kids can have a lot of big feelings over really small ridiculous things what we deem as ridiculous things. i was going to say there's a lot of adults like i can relate to that as well i often tell that story and then go let's just imagine you're an adult now and <laughs> I tell the adult version of that and everyone's like oh yeah that's me all the time right and our children are still learning how to navigate those big feelings and upsets you know a four-year-old is not emotionally aware enough to be able to stand in the kitchen and go mom i did not want you to cut my sandwich that way you know it's really upset me and I've had a very hard day because people haven't listened to me and someone knocked over my tower and it's very hard to say goodbye to you and you know I think we think that children should have the emotional intelligence to be able to speak that and we as adults as you're saying often don't have the ability or capabilities to speak that because we get all stuck in our stuff right and we just project and yell so when we're coming back to why there's always a reason behind the behavior our job as a parent is to be curious it's to constantly be curious and to watching our kids with an element of curiosity you go mm, I wonder what's going on there so when we say to our child come on it's time to go brush your teeth and they're like they just don't respond to you and then you ask them again mate it's time to go brush your teeth and they're like no nah, you know because they're busy playing lego we can then ask them a third or fourth time and start to yell and get angry because they're not listening to us or we can take a breath and we go okay he's my little four-year-old in front of me he actually doesn't care about brushing his teeth. It's not high priority for him. That's my expectation. So what does he need here? Well, maybe he needs some connection in order to be able to listen. So I'm going to go over and I'm going to put my hand on his back and I'm going to go, what are you building, mate? And he's going to be like, I'm building this tower and it's this and that. And we go, yeah, that looks amazing. Tell me more about it. And for two or three minutes, we connect in with him while he tells us about this amazing Lego tower that he's building. And then when we've got his presence and attention, we say, hey, you know what, buddy, we're going to start getting ready for bed. I'm going to brush our teeth. Do you want to put the Lego tower up on the shelf? Should we take it to the bathroom with us? Do you want to jump on my back and we'll fly to the bathroom? Like in that moment, we've offered him connection. And one of the most powerful things for children is connection. They can't often refuse connection, and particularly if it's fun connection, right? <laughs> yeah. But in that moment where we offer some fun and connection, our children are often more likely and more willing to cooperate with what we're doing. Now, if a child still says no and we're still getting some pushback and often, again, if there's a whole lot of stresses and tension in their body, we may not get cooperation and that's sometimes where we need to set a really loving boundary, which doesn't look like yelling and I've told you, you know, if you don't brush your teeth now, there's no stories or it's not when we're hot and heated. It comes from a calm place where we say, sweetheart, I really know you want to keep building your Lego, but it's actually time to brush your teeth now. So you can walk with me to the bathroom if you want or otherwise I'm going to pick you up and we going to go brush your teeth now if your child has got a whole lot of feelings going on they will probably protest that and they might need to cry and they might need to get upset and 
often what they're then doing is they're offloading all those tensions of the day that they may be carrying. It's very hard for a child to cooperate when they've got a big, heavy backpack of feelings going on. So our job as the parent is always to be curious, is always to be like, what am I seeing here? What am I feeling? You know, our our lens that we want to look through is that it's actually my child wants to feel connected to me and they want to cooperate, but sometimes stuff gets in the way. And our job is to be super curious as to what may be in the way and what can we bring to help them move that. Yeah, I, I totally hear that, Lael. And I think knowing that you've got older kids as well, how did that change when you went through the sort of teenage phase of that? So it's it's interesting. The same actual philosophies apply. It just looks a bit different. So when I was asking my teen to do something and they were like complaining about it or, yeah, I'll do it, but they wouldn't do it, I, again, I would get curious and go, all right, what's going on here? Is there something that's too big in their world that's stopping them from doing that? Are my expectations too high because they've just been at school all day and they're feeling really stressed and overwhelmed and what they actually need is a bit of loving and some connection before I ask them to fold the washing or make dinner or those kind of things. So I was always curious and tuning into where they're at and where their bodies are at because what I began to learn is that when my kids were imbalanced, even as teens, then usually they're pretty cooperative and usually they were pretty calm and they were pretty open and they were pretty loving and they're actually pretty kind to each other. But when some big stuff has gone on, and I think every parent knows this, and, and especially as teenagers, you know if you've got an unhappy 14-year-old, they walk into the room and their energy is very loud. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and we were like, what's wrong? And they're like, nothing. And, you know, there becomes this dance of like trying to unpack what's going on. What's needed in that moment is not 20 questions to drill them as to what's happening because often, you know, some te- teenagers hold their cards pretty close to their chest. What I see in that moment is they need safety in order for them to be able to open up about what's going on. So with teenagers, I'm a big fan, and I talk about this sometimes, I'm a big fan of the snack plate. <laughs> Just like my teenagers come home, they'd be grumpy, and I'd be like, oof, something's gone on, and then maybe they're not ready to talk about it yet. And so I'd be like, do you want a snack plate? And they'd be like, yes. <laughs> So I'm going to make you some food. I'm going to love on you just a little bit because I can see that there's something here for you. So sometimes that's just I'm going to give them a cuddle. Sometimes I'm just going to be a bit silly and playful with them. Sometimes I'm going to make them some food and just give them some love. Um, It was, again, different things at different times and depending on which child it was for me. Like all my three kids are really different, so it's depending who it was. But in those moments I was trying to meet them where they're at without pushing my agenda but actually bringing in some love. And then I would often say, look, I can see something's going on and I'm here to talk when you're ready. And so even that invitation to say, hey, I'm here, um, would be I'm not going to push you and I also know and I'm seeing where you're at and I'm just going to bring some love to you, then they would often soften in their own time to come and talk about what's going on. Now, sometimes, you know, you might get teenagers who when they've got a whole lot of feelings going on, the way that they're trying to move that is to come at you a bit, is to, you know, be a bit rude or be a bit judgy or push up against you. I remember one day I was sitting in my bedroom and my daughter, maybe she was 13 at the time, she walked past my room and she basically got both her fingers and gave me the birth. <laughs> and, you know, I know for some parents they would be outraged of like, how dare you? But I just went, oh, something's going on. <laughs> because that's not what she's like. But she just walked past the room and it was kind of this like FU vibe. And I'm like, oh, something's gone down. So my job in that, my, my, what I did is I was curious. I kind of was like, oh, I wonder what's happened. I didn't take that personally. I didn't, I know she loves me. I know she's a beautiful, awesome human. And I also know that in that moment, she's trying really hard to figure out how to process what she's feeling. And so I'm a safe place for her. So she comes and gives me the bird and I'm like, it's almost like an invitation. If we could look behind the behavior, what she's saying in that moment is, oh God, there's so much going on. And mom, I really, really need your help, but I don't know how to ask for that help. And everything feels really overwhelming. Can you just come and bring some safety to me? So I kind of got up and I was like, oof, there's some big fighting words there, baby. And you're not even saying anything. <laughs> and she kind of had a tiny little smirk on her face, but she was still angry. And I was like, come on, what's going on? Do you need to box? Do you, should we have a pillow fight? Like I was really inviting her to, what do you need to move in your body right now? And she's like, yeah, let's have a pillow fight. So, she, you know, so I was like, great. So we started pillow fighting and she was she was pretty strong. <laughs> she was <laughs> 
And I'm like, keep going, come on. Like I wasn't backing away from the feelings. I'm like, I can see that you're annoyed here. I can see this stuff going on. And what she's asking in that moment is I don't know how to move this. So we pillow fight her for a bit and she was still angry and then we kind of laughed a bit and and then something else happened and then she kind of dropped into it and, and then she had some big tears and started talking about what was going on and I just listened. I didn't fix. I just I just listened and, and said, it sounds really hard, darling, and thanks for sharing with me. And, and, you know, in that pillow fight, in that space for her to kind of cry and let it out, you know, she kind of came to a place where her body felt more settled. She felt calmer. She wasn't looking necessarily even for a solution. She just needed to move the tensions of what had happened in her little world on that day. And that that is the same for a five-year-old. It's the same for a 13-year-old, same for a 17-year-old. Our children are constantly going, can you meet me where I'm at and not judge me? Yeah. And be that safe holding container for me as I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this. Now, our partners do exactly the same for us often. You think about our partner or your partner who comes and starts picking a fight with you about the way you packed the dishwasher or just random stuff. Now, we're <laughs> often hardwired to defend you. a camera in our house? I know the dishwasher is a thing. You either pack it like you're crazy or you pack it like meticulously, right? <laughs> those two people marry each other. <laughs> that explains a lot. Yeah. My husband's a meticulous, but I'm the crazy one, right? So he's, yeah, I drive him nuts. I have no doubt all the time. But here's the thing, you know, we often as adults, again, will get triggered when our partner has a goal at us for something. And, and you know, having awareness and mindfulness is being able to watch someone's behavior and be curious and go, oof, that's, you know, that's a dishwasher. It's not worth getting fired up about, but there's something here. And so our job is to be super curious in this moment to go, mm, I wonder what's going on here, and to not bite, right, to not get into the fire, to not – it only takes <laughs> – it takes two people to have a, a disagreement and a fight, right? One of you can actually fan the flames to make it cool, and that usually is by saying what you see. I can see you're pretty annoyed about the dishwasher. Is there something going on? And I'll be like, nah, you just don't pack it the right way. And you're like, yeah, I can see there's a lot of energy around this dishwasher here. Like, what's happening, darling? Like, what's going on for you? So when we can meet it with a bit of love and compassion, then that is what I mean when I talk about safety. It brings an emotional safety so we can move past the anger into the upset. And when we're able to do that, that is where we get to shift the feelings and build greater connection with each other. Well, thanks for listening. If this episode has resonated with you and you haven't already, the thing that you can do to help the most is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends is, of course, awesome and really helpful. Well, that's about all from me for now. I hope you have a great week. And as always, enjoy your caffeinated beverage.